0: Could you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah? We're going to be in Isaiah 55. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 55. That's found on page 615 in the Pew Bible. And this is now our 25th sermon in our series of Isaiah. And due to the size of Isaiah, due to the density of this book, I've not been able to go through my normal way of preaching verse by verse throughout the entire book. In some sections, we had to take a, a very high-level approach. We'd go through several chapters in one sermon. In some sections, we pass completely over. And, and it's not because they're unimportant. It's not because they're not God's Word. It's not because they're not worth studying. Rather, what I wanted to do in the series is really to focus on those sections that are most applicable to us here at Northgate. And then there are some sections where we need to slow down, where we need to dig deep, into these sections because I think they're very applicable to us. And I believe chapter 55 is one of these chapters. So we'll probably spend three, maybe even four weeks in this one chapter in Isaiah 55 because I want to just squeeze all the blessing that we have out of this chapter. So Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 5, hear now the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander to the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Let's pray. Lord, we do need your spirit. I need your spirit to speak through me. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you. And, Father, I pray that as we have this encounter with your holy word, that we will see your son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray that we will know him better. We will love him more. And I pray, Father, that he will be glorified during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever thought about the importance of thirst or the importance of of hunger? I remember a few years ago talking with a friend whose father was in the, the final stages of his battle with cancer. And I remember the friend was, was heartbroken to see his father, see his hero, really just wasting away from this horrible disease. And in those final days, I remember the doctors were trying to get him to eat anything. Anything just to, to, to give him some strength to, to help him go on. Even a can of Ensure or something. And the father told a friend that he had absolutely no appetite. Looking at, at food made him, made him nauseous. And no matter how much he tried, he could not eat or drink any more than, than a few sips. He had no hunger. He had no thirst. And we wonder, why do we thirst? Why do we get hungry? Well, we thirst when we're not content. When we, when we hunger, when we need food. And these are natural pains that, that drive us to action. They get our attention. They make us stop whatever we're doing, no matter how important it is, no matter how enjoyable it is. And we have to stop. We have to eat. We have to drink. I think of my, uh, my little grandson, Elias. You know, he lets you know when he is hungry. He makes clear. He's very persistent if he's thirsty. And he makes it, in, in, and he's not going to let you have rest until you feed him. And naturally, naturally, we, we want to satisfy this hunger. We want to satisfy this thirst. We want to be in a state of, of contentment. We don't like to be thirsty. We don't like to be hungry. Thirst and hunger they drive us to action. And this chapter that we're looking at this morning, this is a call to the thirsty. It's a call to the hungry. Verse 1 starts off, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And the speaker who's, who's giving this invitation is the Lord. It's an invitation from the Lord to everyone who thirsts. And the Lord here is not speaking about physical thirst. He's speaking about spiritual thirst. So what is, what is spiritual thirst? Well, spiritual thirst, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for this intense longing. It's an intense desire, like, like physical thirst. And it's an intense desire that, that needs to be satisfied. But unlike physical thirst or physical hunger that's satisfied with water or with food, this spiritual thirst is much more elusive Often we don't even know what it is, and, and, and we don't know what we seek, and we don't know how to, to satisfy this intense spiritual thirst. And sadly, because we don't know what causes it, this spiritual thirst, we, and we don't know how to satisfy it, often what we do is we attempt to satisfy it in the wrong ways, in ways that actually cause more harm, ways that actually cause the spiritual thirst to get even worse, to increase. I mean, think of a person who's who's shipwrecked on the ocean and they run out of water and in desperation they grab some salt water. So there's water all over. Them. They, they they take the salt when they start to drink it. But sadly, they only find that it cannot quench their thirst. It cannot benefit their body. But rather, the high salt contact actually hurts their body, actually increases their thirst. And this is what we do with our spiritual thirst. This is what we do when we attempt to quench it in ways that God does not provide. and When we try to quench it in, in ways that are not God, it actually gets worse. And this spiritual thirst is what is experienced by everyone. Every single person who's ever lived, due to the fact that we are made in the image of God, we experience this spiritual thirst. And what it is, it's a desire to know God. It's a desire to know our Creator. St. Augustine famously identified this spiritual hunger and thirst in his Confessions He said, thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, each one of us, each one of us has a God-shaped hole in our hearts. It's a hole that can only be filled by one thing, one person, the living God, the true God himself. And often we don't even recognize this. We don't recognize that this desire, what it's for, and we, and we constantly strive to fill this hole with other things, things in this created world, only to find that they cannot satisfy this desire. Anything other than God is simply just like drinking salt water. It only makes the desire worse. It only makes us spiritually even sicker. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, it's a call to the thirsting, a call to everyone who thirsts, which again is all of us, every human being made in God's image. This is a universal call to all people and it's a call to come to the waters a call to come to the living waters and this is the only place where this thirst can be satisfied and these living waters they're not sold right if they were so they would be of infinite cost we could never we could never afford them we could never purchase them but they are given away for free It's it's given to those who respond to this universal call. It is given to them for free. It's offered to those without money, without price. In other words, it's all of grace. Nothing that we can earn. It's all of grace. And the first step to responding to this call is actually to recognize our need. See, what Satan does is he does a good job of confusing us. He does a good job of distracting us, of misdirecting us, of making us fail to see what we need And to have us to seek those things that actually will never satisfy. Satan seeks to get us to to drink the salt water, thinking that it will quench our thirst. And it will not. It can never quench our thirst. Only God can quench that thirst. And my friends, we all fall for this deception. This is our natural reaction, is it not? And the text addresses our natural tendency in verse 2. It says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfying? And isn't that what we all do? We, we spend our money. We spend lots of money on things that, cannot, that, that will not satisfy. And we spend our time, lots of time in search for things to, to give our lives meaning only to find that this search is frustrated. The verse continues. It says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. See, I think food provides for us a great illustration of the spiritual principle. I mean, think about our eating habits. Think about the typical eating habits of our American diet. Why, are, why are we so drawn to food that is not good for us? Why do we desperately crave sugar and fat and salt? Even when we know that these foods have no nutritional value. And even though we know that these facts will actually, these foods will actually harm us, make our health worse. I remember eating a piece of chocolate cake or or a bag of potato chips, and I wasn't really enjoying it. And I can actually feel my stomach start to hurt, but I'm still eating. I'm eating, knowing that I'm going to feel worse later on. And then after I after I eat all this, I, I complain. I blame my wife. Say, like, Lynn, why didn't you stop me from eating that?" But I I don't understand that. Why is junk food so addicting? Why don't Why, why don't I get Have any of you ever been addicted to to lettuce or cucumbers or or carrots? Uh, do you remember that that uh, there was a potato chip commercial a couple of years ago? I think it was Lay's, and, and it was, you can't eat just one. How come you never heard anyone say you can't eat just one piece of celery, right? You, know, you, know, you don't see that. You, you, you eat one piece of celery, maybe you'll spit it out because it tastes so bad. And I think maybe that's why we have to cover it with greasy and salty and fatty dressings to, to make it tasty. But that's it. We, we crave the, these, these uh Uh, these things that are not good for us. I heard one person say that fast food restaurants, they don't actually serve food. What they sell is flavors. Flavors that create a craving, but they have no nutritional value. They provide no real long-term satisfaction. In fact, if you had a a diet of of fast food, eventually that would kill you. And I think the American diet is a perfect illustration of our spiritual state. We are addicted to spiritual junk food. We are drawn to spirituality. Does that does not lead to help, but rather that leads to death. We love to be entertained. We love to have our ears tickled. We want to be told it's all about us, that, that we're great, that we have the power to be all that we can be, that God wants to serve us, that God wants to make us happy, that we're fine how we are, that there's no need to fight our sins, that we can, we can actually indulge our sins. Be true to yourself. You can create your own reality. You can be your own God. We are drawn to these things. We love to hear these things. But they're empty. They are worthless things, things that will spiritually kill us, things that will lead to spiritual death, lead to eternal death. And it terrifies me. It terrifies me to think how many people at this very moment, at this very moment, are sitting in churches this very morning thinking that they're getting closer to God. When they are unknowingly being fed poison. Poison that reinforces their rebellion against God, hardens their hearts to their own sin, hardens their hearts to their need for grace, and hardens it to really the the free offer of the gospel that is out there. So I'm okay, I'm good. And the antidote to this poison is offered to us for free. Look again at verse 1. Look look again at, at this call to the thirsty. This call to the hungry, it says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. That's what satisfies the waters, the living waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And notice this invitation is free. It requires no money. It's without price. And also notice what is offered here. It says wine and milk. Now, these are not literal, but these are, these are symbolic. Wine here represents joy. It represents gladness, festiveness, uh, laughing, fellowship, happiness. That's what wine represents. And milk represents strength, strength and health. I mean, think this is the perfect food. This is what a, what a baby needs. All a baby needs to grow healthy and strong is milk. And what is offered for free is joy and health. And this is the exact opposite. This is the exact opposite of the misery and spiritual malnutrition that is so often that we, we crave for, we spend so much money to get. And I think it's interesting to observe that the most important things, really the, the, the absolute necessities in life, are free. These are things that are free. Whilst the luxuries, whilst the things that we don't need, whilst things that often are harmful to us, those are the things that are very costly. I mean, think about it when you, when you go to a restaurant. I think you can get a glass of water, absolutely essential for, for, for life. The, the healthiest thing we can drink, that's free a soft drink, a can of soda, loaded with sugar, that's going to cost you 2 or $3. Again, what's good for you, what's best for you, is free. Or think about the thing that is most essential, the thing without which we would die within a few minutes, air, oxygen, completely free. Compare that with cocaine, not essential for life, actually very detrimental to life. Street cost of cocaine, $200 per gram. That means a pound of it would cost more than the average person earns in two years. See, we we spend money on things that or not help us. And this physical observation provides, I think, a good illustration of the spiritual reality. That is which that things that which are most important for us spiritually, they are the things that are free. And that while the things that are that will harm us, that will distract us from that which is most important, those are the things that are costly. Interesting observation. And the gospel. The gospel, God's gift of eternal life is absolutely free. Compare this with the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars that people will spend towards the end of their lives on drugs and surgeries and treatments, all just to get a few years, more years of life. Or plastic surgeries so that you you look younger than you are. Or even some people, you may have heard of this, some people will go so far as actually having their bodies cryogenically frozen, when they die, in hopes that some future technology will be able to revive them and that they will be able to have eternal life. It's so foolish. When eternal life is offered in Jesus Christ, it is a free gift to all. And even the proclamation of the gospel itself, the only message that gives eternal life, that that, that the true God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This message is proclaimed for free throughout the world. The message we looked at last week from Isaiah 53, that Jesus is our substitute, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, that he satisfied God's justice on our behalf. And for all those who are united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have eternal life. This is the message that is offered for free. And for those of us who have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone, we have the only thing that matters. And this message, again, is proclaimed free every week at Bible-believing churches, often every day. We hear it on, on Christian radio, on the Internet, by street preachers. And ideally, it should be the message of every single Christian, everyone we come into contact with. We should proclaim the grace of God, this gift that is absolutely free. But so many reject, so many reject this good news, and they'll spend thousands of dollars on, on self-help seminars and, and New Age books. See, there are so many who are ready to to cash in on this spiritual hunger, this spiritual thirst that we have, and they offer poisonous food that can never satisfy. I mean, go into a self, go into a bookstore, and you see the self-help section. It's huge in the books, probably one of the biggest sections. And even in Christian sections, we see self-help things like like Osteen and and the Prosperity Gospel. They're going to tell you that you you can be your best life, you can have your best life now, and throw a little Jesus, sprinkle a little Jesus in there. But it's really poison. It's not the gospel. It's not saying that you'd have to die to yourself. Verse 3, the text gets even more specific in what this free water is like, what it contains, where the power is found. It says, incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, it's the Lord who is calling here. It's the Lord who is inviting people to come to him. And remember, this is a universal call. This is going out to all peoples, not just for Israel. It's an open invitation for all who thirst. There is no limitation. Verse 1 says, Come everyone, come everyone who thirsts. Not just some who thirst, not just Israel who thirsts, but everyone who thirsts. And who are the ones who thirst? As I mentioned before, every single person, every person who is made in the image of God, every person who has that God-shaped hole in their hearts, this is a universal invitation to come to the Lord. And how do we come to Him? Well, the text gives us the answer. It's by listening to Him, by listening to His Word. That is the instruction that we have. He's urging all people to listen to Him, to incline their ears to Him. And God's Word here is life. And God here, He is urging all who thirst. He is urging them to hear, hear that their soul may live. And as we saw in verse one, God's word is given out freely. I mean, think about it. God's word—the only words that actually have the power to impart life—they are absolutely free. I mean, think about the Bible, the number one bestseller of all time. It is absolutely free. You can find it. you can find it online for free. You can find it in every single hotel room you go in, every hospital. It is freely given out distributed it is the most important thing and is given out for free and look what happens when those hear and respond to god's life-giving eternal word it says and i will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for david it says god will make a covenant with those who respond to his word." So what is a covenant? Covenant is is a contract. A covenant is an agreement. A covenant is a, a formal relationship with the God of the universe. And this invitation is given out to all. It's not just given out to Israel. It is given out to all people. And here's the really wild part. This invitation, it's not a different covenant. It's not like he has a covenant with Israel, he has a covenant with the church, he has a covenant maybe with some other, with with Muslims and Mormons and all these different people, has all these different covenants. No, there is only one covenant. And we see it, it it is a covenant of grace. And we see this by the, the, the reference to Israel's king, King David. See, this invitation given to all is an invitation to be part of God's one covenant people. See, we don't have multiple peoples. God has one covenant people. And all are invited into this covenant with David. See, God selected one nation, the nation of Israel, to bring his word through. And now all are invited to come into the people of David, or come into this covenant. And this covenant is really the covenant of grace. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We've talked about this before. Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelion. It's basically the first proclamation of the gospel. Way back, Genesis 3.15, when our first parents sinned against God, God provided a solution. God said that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And what that meant is there were going to be people of the seed of the woman, which would be following up God, and the seed of the serpent, which would be opposed to God. But what this is saying to us is that the seed of the serpent could actually become part of the seed of the woman. See, this is an open invitation to all to come in to God's people. And it's offered to all. All who respond to this invitation. All who hear this word. And all who come to him by faith. I mean, it's amazing. And King David, who is referenced here, he he, he is a pointer beyond himself. King David is a pointer to the greater David. To his greater son. He is a pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the Him. We see in verse 4. It says, Behold, I made him, Christ, a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. See, Christ is the leader. Christ is the head of the covenant of grace. Christ is the substance. And Christ is the only entrance into this covenant of grace. So let let me work this out a little bit for you. Christ is the substance. What does this mean? Christ is the substance of the covenant of grace. He is the one who, requi- who fulfills the requirements, not of the covenant of grace, but of the covenant of works. Say, so what's this? What's this covenant of works? Well, covenant of works is God's original requirement for people to have a fellowship with Him, how we can come into His favor. And what is this original requirement? It is obedience, it is perfect, per- perfect, perpetual obedience. And this covenant was first made with Adam. Adam was a representative of every single one of us here. Every person who's ever lived is in Adam. Adam is our representative. And in order to meet this requirement of the covenant, Adam was given a simple test. And it was just one test. It was not to eat the forbidden fruit. That was it. Everything else was was permitted to Adam. He could everything else he could eat, and it, there was no other limits. He only thing he couldn't do is eat this one forbidden fruit. That was the only, only prohibition that God had given him. And guess what? Adam failed this test. And as a result, our race was under God's condemnation. We are now under God's wrath. But God in his mercy, God in his mercy gave us a new Adam. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, He was given a test too. But our Lord's test was not the same. It was not simply to abstain from eating this forbidden fruit. After the fall, God had given his full revelation of his holy character. And his holy character is seen in his law, in his moral law, in his civil law, in his ceremonial law. And this law was was recorded in over 600 regulations that we see in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, and these were the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. And then as our representative, as the new Adam, as the mediator of the new covenant, Lord Jesus Christ, he kept every single one of those regulations. He kept them personally, he kept them perfectly, and he kept them perpetually. Christ did what Adam failed to do. But not only did Christ fulfill the requirements of the covenant of works for his people, not only did he do what, what Adam failed to do, Christ also suffered the penalty for our debt incurred by his people for failure to fulfill the requirements of the covenant of works. You see, see, Adam started kind of neutral. He just had to obey this to, to, to fulfill the covenant of, of works. Christ not only has to fulfill it, Christ has to pay that debt from every time that we fail to do it. So he's so much more. He had, he had to fulfill that debt and satisfy the covenant of works. See, there are two things that Christ has done. He has kept the law, right, that we were required to do and we didn't keep. And he suffered the penalty for our failure to keep the law. And these are the two aspects of his role as the covenant mediator. So Christ is is the substance of the covenant of grace. But Christ is also the only entrance into the covenant of grace. Christ alone, Christ alone is the door. He is the only way that we can get into into God's favorable presence. See, Adam was the representative of all the world. All his descendants, every person who ever lived, is represented by Adam. Everyone is under that curse. But Christ, Christ is the representative of all those who are in him, all those who are united to him by faith alone. So in essence, what we see in this chapter is this is an invitation. This is a call. It is a call to faith in Christ. That's what we're seeing in Isaiah. It is a call to faith in Christ. That's what it means to come to the waters. It's a call to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is presented in Scripture, as he is presented in the Gospel. And this call is open to all. This is the outward call. And this call is for all who are thirsty. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation to drink of the water of Christ. And it's offered to us freely. It's offered to us without money. It's offered to us without price. And this free invitation is offered to all. But it only benefits, it only benefits those who respond, those who accept this invitation by faith. And the one who responds to this offer by faith is addressed in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Christ is our leader and our commander, which means we are to follow him. It means we are to obey him. It means he is our first allegiance. It means Christ is before every other allegiance in our lives. Let's think about that. Christ is to be before every other allegiance in our life. He is before our country. He is before our family. He is before our marriage. He is before our job. And most importantly, we put him before self. That seems to be our, our highest idol, right? We worship ourselves. It means we must die to ourselves every day to live for him. We must put Christ first in everything. We must obey him in everything. So what does this look like? What does it look like to obey him? It means knowing, loving, and obeying his word. My friends, every day, every day, Christ's supremacy in our life is going to be challenged. It's going to be challenged. Every day we will be presented with alternatives that compete for our affection against Christ. And every day we must put these temptations, these temptations that usurp Christ's authority, we must put them to death. These challengers, and they won't be bad things. They won't be sinful things in and of themselves. They'll actually be good things. They'll be things like our family, our career, our marriage, our health, our happiness, our financial well-being. Even Christian ministry itself could come between us and Christ. And when one of these good things attempts to to elevate itself to the place where only Christ is, the position of ultimate thing, a position reserved only for Christ and Christ alone, when that happens, we must mercilessly and decisively beat it back to its appropriate station. It has an appropriate station, but not as ultimate. We have to put it to its proper place. And my friends, this is a daily struggle, a daily struggle for every single one of us to keep Christ and Christ alone. As supreme, And we must know what it means to accept this invitation to come to the waters, to accept this invitation to come to Christ. While this offer is freely giving, accepting this invitation and drinking this water comes at a cost. And this cost is complete and total submission to Christ. He said again, coming to him is free, but it comes with a cost. And that cost is complete and total submission to Christ. See, we're no longer our own. We were bought with a price. And as such, we belong completely, fully, totally to the one who purchased us. We, we are his. The Apostle Paul referred to himself in his letters as a slave to Christ, a bondservant. The, the, the Greek word is doulos. It means slave. He is a slave to Christ. And that is what we are as well. And now, this may seem contradictory. You're listening to the sermon. You're saying, John, on the one hand, you're saying, Coming to Christ, drinking of this water is a free gift. It's all of grace. It costs us nothing. And then on the other hand, you're saying that coming to Christ, drinking of this water costs us everything? Complete and total submission to Christ? This doesn't make sense. How can it be both? Well, first of all, this is not just my own words. Jesus himself makes the same contradiction. Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and you will find rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Nothing is required. We simply come. It's like we sing in, in the song, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But Jesus also warns us to count the cost of discipleship. And he uses the illustration. Remember the illustration of a man building a tower. He has to say, make sure he has enough resources to finish the tower. Or a man going to war, a king going to war. Does he have the resources, does he have the men to accomplish the tasks? So the question is, what is it? Is it costly or is it free? Well, here, here's a way to think about it. See, contrary to what many churches evangelize, evangelism, and coming to faith, this, this is not the end goal of the gospel. Coming to faith is not the end goal of the gospel. It's actually the starting point. The end goal is not to get people to, to say a prayer, to come up and, and, and make a profession of faith. That's great. But that is just the starting point. See, the gospel, the new birth, what this does is it ushers in a new kingdom, when we come to Christ, we are transferred from, from one kingdom. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom leading to death, with all its benefits, with all its obligations. And we are then transferred into a new kingdom, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of God, with all its benefits and all its obligations. So the cost of this transfer, this is free. But when we are in the new kingdom, we are we are then free from, from the destiny, we are free from the obligations of our old kingdom, But we are now bound to the destiny and the obligations of the new kingdom. And the destiny of the old kingdom, which each person is in because we're in Adam, is eternal death. The obligation is bondage to sin, bondage and slavery to self, to our sinful nature. But in the new kingdom, in the new kingdom, we are given eternal life. And we are set free from this slavery to sin. But here's the thing, we are still in bondage. Not in bondage to sin, not in bondage to self, but in bondage to Christ. See, like Paul, all Christians are bondservants to Christ. We are slaves to Christ. And I remember preaching about this a couple of years ago, and, and uh, there were some visitors here visiting with a family. And afterwards, the, the person heard that. I said, I don't like that. I'm not a slave to anyone. My friends, each one of us are slaves. slave. As, as creatures, autonomy is not possible. We, we like to think, I am, I am free. I am, I am bound to no one. No. We will either be slaves to sin, which leads to eternal destruction, or if we're free from that, we are slaves to Christ, which leads to eternal life. There is Autonomy is not an option for us, and not an option at all. And each kingdom has its obligations. The kingdom of this world has a cost, and the kingdom of God has a cost. And the transfer from death to life, this is free. But once we are alive and once we follow Christ, we have work to do for the kingdom. So what does this work? Well, we see this work, and we see this commission in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. And here we see our commission as Christians, and it's the great commission. See, when we come to the water, our primary task after coming to water is to lead others to the water. We don't just stay there and just drink it all for ourselves. No, we are to lead others to the water. When we accept the invitation, when we accept God's call to his kingdom, our job is then to call others, uh, a nation that we do not know, a nation that did not know us, we are to call them to join that kingdom. And here's the exciting part. Here's here's the really exciting part. This nation that we call, this nation that does not belong to God's kingdom, that, that we did not know, that does not know us, the same grace that drew us into the kingdom will then draw them into the kingdom. And here's the promise. Here's the amazing promise. Our witness will be effective. We will be effective. We are not given a a, a task that we can't do. We are given a task that is guaranteed to be able to do. It says they will run to us. They shall enter the kingdom of God. And do you see what what a great privilege we are given? We're not just saved so that we can go to heaven. We are saved. We, We are commissioned to bring others to heaven with us. We are to be the instruments used to, to share the gospel and to bring salvation. What, what an amazing privilege we have. It's a privilege, really, that we will be celebrating for all eternity as we are spending eternity with people that, that, that the Lord used us as an instrument to bring into his kingdom. What, what, an, amazing, what an amazing privilege. We, we, we should praise God just for what has what allowed us to do. And, and you see how, how the Lord uses our thirst how he uses our uneasiness, how he uses our, our spiritual discomfort to draw us to himself, to draw us to the water. And then he uses us to lead others to that same water. See, we, we don't save others. We clear, we don't save others. What we do is we point them to the same water that brought us life. And this entire section that we're looking at today can really be summed up in two verses that we looked at in our gospel reading. I'm going to read this again for you. John chapter 7, verses 37-38. Jesus says... If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, the living water, and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isn't this amazing? When we drink of Jesus, his living water then flows into us and then flows out of us to satisfy the thirsty around us. But even this is not the end. This amazing privilege is not the end. We see the final destination of the Christian life given in the end of verse 5. It says, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. See, this is the end result. This is the end result of having our thirst quenched in Christ. See, one day, all of us who belong to Christ, we shall be glorified. It means we shall be like Christ is now. One day we will reach the point where there will be no more thirst. Not only will we not thirst, but we will be satisfied and we will be completely and eternally full and here's the amazing thing. We'll be completely and, and, and fully satisfied in him, but we will also forever increase more and more in that joy, in that satisfaction for all eternity. So my friends, the, the, the call here is simple. Come, come all you who thirst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the privilege that we read here. We are amazed at, that you would not only call us, not only draw us to yourself, but then use us to draw others. And Father, I admit that I often don't. I fail, and I'm sure most of us here fail. But Lord, help us to realize what an amazing gift we have been given. We have been called to the living waters, and we are to then have living waters flow out of us so that everyone who comes into contact with us shall see you, and we shall point to you. Lord, give us a vision of that time when we're eternity, when we are there for 10,000 years, shining brightly as as the sun. And we are there with those who you used us to draw into the kingdom. What an amazing, what an amazing privilege. We pray, Father, that you will be pleased and glorified in us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.